Hello and welcome my partners in crime and as always I say that in the nicest possible way. Now this is the Charles Manson case. Now this is just about really Charles Manson. Because of the Manson family as, and the murders and as, as we get to through in all this sort of stuff, it's a massive case this. Charles Manson himself is, has got so much on him I've had to really break it down and this is a three part video just on Charles Manson. So I do mention the murders in this one, but not in any detail, because really we want to save them for when I do Tex, because when we really think about it, Tex was the murderer, wasn't he? He was, I think, Tex, a natural born killer. And we'll go into more about him when we get to it. So this is part one of Charles Manson. Now Charles Miles Manson is actually name I think he was born with like Nee Maddox or his mother's name and he was born on the 12th of um, November 1934 and he died on the 19th of uh, November 2017 so he had a very long life for someone that was an absolute nightmare now he was known as uh, an American criminal and cult leader and I suppose this is where this Manson family things come from he was your typical cult leader to tell you the truth, his personality was such that of a narcissist, but this man had the art of manipulation. He knew how to make people, you know, psychopaths have this ability as well, actually, that someone like Charles Manson, who is really a psychopath, when you, when you look at him in a deep psychological way, he really is, um, they have this ability to read other people, to read the body language, to read the room. You know when you say you're going to meet and you can read the room. Charles Manson had this ability. He knew instantly whether he could manipulate you or not. He just knew. And if he couldn't, he wouldn't bother. Just by looking and maybe what you said and your actions, this man could read you like a book. Really, he really could. And he was so good at it. Now, this... Was it born? Probably, I think. I think the thing is with Charles Manson, is when you really look at his life, it was a mixture of everything that made Manson what he was. But yeah, I think Manson was born with something, you know, he, he was, that made him what he was. But also he was, as I said, this manipulator, it's an art, really, to watch this man work. And I know he's done interviews with Diane Sawyer and different people like that. And he's captivating, isn't he? So as we go through this, you'll see the different characters of Manson, because he had different characters and he played his parts really well, actually. But most of it, you know, was an act. He was very good at portraying something he wasn't. Like Manson, you know, in the mid-1967 when he formed this what became known as the Manson family, you know, this quasi sort of, I don't know, community or commune, commune based in, I think, California. <clears throat> and how he manipulated, or how it was said in court, how he manipulated, you know, them to kill nine people. That's a lot, isn't it? It's, it's a lot to manipulate one person to do one murder, but a whole group of people to murder not just once, you know, not a group 
you know, not just one single murder, but these groups of murders. You know, that takes some manipulation, if that's what really happened. Or it comes down to, I think, when we really look at Tex, and actually some of the other girls in that, uh, especially one of the girls in that group, you know, were they had kill, you know, murder in mind anyway? I think you can manipulate someone to do certain amount of stuff, right? You can. And you can add the drugs into this and everything else that was going on in them days, you can. But I don't know with the murders that these committed, whether you can be manipulated that much to do these sorts of murders. So anyway, so although, you know, I think the thing is, is it's a motive of all as, as well for, the, for what they said about these murders. Um, you know, this was done in 1969, these murders, and at the point, uh, at this time in, in the, the law, I think, in America, because this is really what it comes down to, is how Manson was charged. Because remember, Manson actually didn't kill anybody. They said he incited and he, and he, you know, manipulated people to do his bidding for him and stuff like that. Um, you know, and so really, I think it was touch and go in the, at this case, to tell you the truth, for, for the prosecution here, that to really work hard. Because what you're trying to say to people, uh, the jury and the public at large, is that you're trying to commit a man for murder of multiple people and he actually didn't do the act of murder. So yes, the man is the forethought was there, wasn't it? All these sort of things were there that make up murder, but he actually didn't do the act. So he was one of the first people anyway in um, American, or in actually history I think, to be charged with this sort of a murder that he didn't do. I mean now, um, you know, we have joint enterprise, we have lots of different things now that come and go in law to help us assist with these sort of criminals. So anyway, these, uh, these followers, they committed this series of nine murders at uh, four locations in July and August of 1969. So 1969 was, um, my sister Lisa was born in 1969, but you know, the world was different than in 1969, wasn't it? So although right, the motives for this murder, as I said before, were disputed. Now, um, and that was disputed by the Los Angeles County District Attorney, believed that Manson intended to start a race war. I'm just not so sure about that. All right? I don't, I, how do we know? Because really whatever come out of Manson's mouth was usually a lie anyway. But they're saying, um, a lot of the members of that family were saying that that wasn't right. The thing is with Manson, you just don't know. So that was one theory. The other theory was that they wanted to have people released out of prison and stuff, and so they was killing certain people. I think clearly and purely in Manson's mind, the reason he wanted these people murdered was for revenge. I think that was his whole motive. I think all the other stuff just came about. His was always about revenge. Because Manson didn't like that word, no. And this is a true narcissist at work here, Manson. If you did something to Manson, whether it was right or wrong, he would never forget. He was always going to come back. Always. And as we go through this, you'll see as he's gone through his life, lucky he was caught, really, when he was. So in 1971, he was convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder 
for the death of seven people, including the film actress Sharon Tate. Now, we all know about Sharon Tate's murder. She was pregnant. We all know that, and that will be in much, much more detail in the case of Tex, because this man was not there. He just wasn't there, and we all know why he sent them to that house. I mean, because one of my favourite movie stars is Doris Day. I love Doris Day. And her son used to live there. And he sort of, he wasn't actually nasty to Manson, but he was a record producer. And he didn't like Manson's music. He, as many, uh, you know, um, music producers or film producers, if you're not fit for purpose or, I mean, they're not going to waste their money. So I think he let him down quite easily. But this was the whole thing about the revenge. So he knew he didn't live there anymore. Um, and he knew that Sharon Tate and that lived there. But what it was is that, I think with Manson, he wanted to do anything that would make him famous. He wanted to be known. He loved it, that attention. He absolutely loved it. And so he knew that they wasn't there and he knew that Roman Pansky and that Sharon Tate had moved into this property. Um, and actually, he'd left about a year before. I think in Manson's mind, and I think he said it to some reporter once, he wanted to let them know that he could do it. He knew he couldn't get to him, but he could get to one of the biggest stars, really up-and-coming stars in America at that time, Sharon Tate, who was, you know, eight and a half months pregnant, and some of the, you know, other people in the home that died with her showed that if he could get to them, he could get to anyone. And that was the address that he used to live at, so he must have thought, oh my gosh, you know, once it all come out, these people were very, very lucky, to tell you the truth. Anyway, the prosecution contended that um, while Manson was not directly ordered, never directly ordered the murder, so now we're not saying he didn't actually do the act, he actually didn't order the murder directly, you go and you kill these, 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 and these. He didn't do that. His ideology constituted the overt act of conspiracy. So you're asking a jury now to really open their mind up to the concept of this. Now, to tell you the truth, and without Manson, this probably wouldn't have held up, but because Manson, as I said, he likes the attention and stuff like this. And they had to prove, didn't they, that in this court of law, you know, or to this jury, um, that this man had the skill of manipulation, that the conspiracy was something that could have happened and did happen. And so um, I think a few days into the trial, Manson shaved his head and he put this swastika, didn't he, on his um, head or the star, I think, at first on his head. Uh, and then the girls were told not to follow him, actually, because if they had followed him straight away, it would have looked even more, wouldn't it, that he was this, had this personality. They couldn't help themselves, these girls, his followers. They couldn't help themselves. They wanted him free. They was even saying they was going to kill himself if he wasn't free. So the girls that were on trial for him shaved their heads and put the stuff, the cross, you know, the marks on their head and done all that. And that actually then proved to the jury in some way that Manson was guilty of that conspiracy by his own actions in court. So if Manson has actually shut his mouth, really, sat there and been normal, but Manson couldn't do that, he may have got off with this murder. 
And so he helped the prosecution to tell you in the end, really get their case across. Because Manson clearly held great um, authority over these people. They did believe him. They did worship him. He had that skill of manipulation and, and a cult leader probably of the best that we'll probably ever see <clears throat> was Charles Manson. You know, genius in some ways, really, Manson, but uh, illiterate in many others. So Manson, before this time anyway, before he actually even went to this call for these charges, up for these murders of nine people, he'd spent more than half of his life in the correctional institutions anyway. He was um, always in and out, and he spent quite a long time periods actually inside, and he actually did quite, didn't mind it, to tell the truth, in prison. I think he found it okay. So then when this, he began then to gather this cult and this, you know, um, this cult following, he was a singer-songwriter, okay? And this was on the fringes, I think, of the, of the, you know, the Los Angeles music sort of scene at the time, the industry. And it was literally through a chance association, actually, with Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys that introduced Manson to um, the producer, Terry Mulcher, Doris Day's son. So that's where they all come into it. In 1968, not a lot of many people know this actually, been kept a bit quiet. The Beach Road Boys recorded Manson's song, Cease to Exist, and it was retitled Never um, Learn Not to Love. Never Learn Not to Love as the B-side of one of their singles, but they didn't credit Manson. So again, this rejection, this sort of thing's coming in. So Wilson and Melcher, uh, Melcher they, um, they severed ties then with Manson because by this stage, you know, he was losing it, Manson. He was angry because, you know, Terry didn't want him to do anything because he really didn't think his music was good enough. The Beach Boys, in his eyes, had stolen his song. They had re-recorded it, changed the name, and never credited him for any of it. So there was the two marks against him. So when I talk about, I think these murders and killings, in Manson's mind, was about revenge, really. And this was early in 1969. I think the Tates were murdered in August 1969. So a few months off, really, um, when everything was coming around. So the Los Angeles District Attorney said that Manson was obsessed with the Beatles, particularly the 1968 self-titled album. Lots of people like the Beatles and stuff. Of course they do. And Manson was actually quite a good singer. He was quite a good, actually, um, writer of music and, you know, produced sort of music. And he did like the Beatles because it was the same sort of thing that he liked. Many, many people liked the Beatles. But I think what they was trying to do is make the distinction between that and Hilda Skelter. But he wasn't in this property, was he? He wasn't in the property. To do any of this writing in the blood of the people, you know, like pigs and Hilda Skelter and stuff like that, and yes, he may have talked about it, he may have talked because he was um, 
you know, infatuated with him. He was constantly on the go anyway, Manson, with, with his madness. And it, and it really was madness a lot of the time. So yes, he could have discussed that in there. But I think it's just something they wrote, to tell you the truth. I really do. I don't think, I don't think he had that the connection, what he wanted to make to the Beatles was that. Not really. He, they say that it was the Beatles about this Helter Skelter and this race war and all this sort of stuff was coming. It was like a sign. And, that, and you know, people think about Manson that he was on a load of drugs and stuff like this. He did take drugs. But when he used to run his family and control his family, he controlled his family with drugs. He would hand out LSD and God knows what else to them and pretend to take it himself. And he didn't. He wasn't stupid, because Manson liked to be in control. He was a control freak, and there was no way that he was going to be out of his head on drugs around this lot, which ended up killing nine people. I don't think he was that stupid. Also, there's other theories around the murders of the um, the Tate Manson. Well, testified. Someone testified. Really, one of them. He was trying to say that. They was trying the Tate murders, all these murders, and the uh, Labianca murders were copycat crimes designed to exonerate Manson's friend Bobby uh, Busona, Busoni, whatever his name is. Um, but I don't believe that either. Listen, it was all about revenge, really, with this. I don't even think, and it could have been about a race war when you really look at it, but I just don't think that was right. Manson wasn't in them buildings when these people were killed. He, I think with the LeBlanca, he um, looked through the window and said, yeah, that's it, and he knew them as well. He used to live up the street, so he knew these people. And actually, they were very nice people. They hadn't done him any harm at all. So there's lots of conspiracy theories about Manson and why they did what they did. Manson controlled these with drugs, okay? And it was a time when they thought that you know, conspiracy theories and all this sort of stuff like that. And he was just using whatever he could, I think, to encourage these to do his bidding for him. So conspiracy for him is the right charge for this man. He's actually more dangerous than probably a killer because someone that hasn't got the guts to kill himself like Manson, but can, can get someone to do it for them it's much more dangerous, aren't they? They're da more dangerous than the killer themselves because the killer, usually someone like this, may kill once or twice. But Manson wanted to kill loads. I mean, on his list, there was absolutely loads. And I think if Manson had got away with this, and as we go through his childhood and then up to how it was called, um, and he could have got away with it, to tell the truth. It's only by accident most of these are caught, and another one by this. I think when we talk about that sort of thing with Manson. There's some manipulation that's always there. And with Manson, because he was a manipulator and he was able to read people and body language and, and all this sort of actions that we have, you know, facial movements, he could clock it straight away. Was he telling them what he wanted them to hear to make them do things he wanted to do? Did he believe any of this stuff himself? Probably not. I think it was revenge right the way through because he was such a revengeful man. He couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand the rejection. He couldn't. 
He wanted to be famous and this man was going to do anything he could and use anybody he could to get him what he wanted. And in Manson's mind, you know, we can't say he's um, silly really, can we? Because he's, you know, he's got a very high IQ, I think. But in them days, we're talking about there wasn't laws, was there? So he thought in his mind, if I don't do these murders, I can't be prosecuted. Because actually, you couldn't in them days. Not really. There was no conspiracy like that. It was so hard to prove. And, you know, they worked hard to get him on that. But really, in Manson's mind, as all this was going on, all this stuff was going on, no. He was um, quite happy to let them take the blame. And them being such these followers that loved and adored him, they would have. So listen, Manson's, Charles, Charlie Manson, his notoriety was no, it was embroiled with insanity really. He was insane. And when you talk to him, you see him, or we see he's insane. You can sort of see it. Or can you? Because I think we, and we, we're gonna look at his childhood in a minute and go back through his childhood. Is it insanity? You answer this question after you've heard about his childhood, now he comes up through the ranks. Or is it a mixture of everything? Is it a mixture, as he says, of the environment, the upbringing, you know, the life in and out of prison? Is he a making of what society had done to him? Because that's what he suggests. We'll have to wait and see. So let's have a look at his childhood. So Charles Manson was born, as I said, on the 12th of November 1934 to the 16-year-old Catherine Manson Bauer Cavender Nee Maddox, born in 1918 and died in 1973. Now we all go, oh, she was 16. Well, listen, in 1934, you'd leave school at 14 or 15 in some states of America. I don't know what that sort of, what state she was. I think she was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, but I don't know what the law was like in them days uh, on it. But really, 16, you know, wasn't young at all in them days to have a child. So his first name, when he was born, was No Name Maddox. No Name Maddox. So, you know, not a good name to be known by, not a good start, but within weeks he was called Charles Miles Maddox. Manson's biological father appears to have been Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Senior, 1910 to 1954 of Castleburg, Kentucky, against whom Kathleen Maddox filed a paternity suit that resulted in an agreed judgment in 1937. Manson was never have known, may never have known his biological father. Scott worked immediately in the local mills and all this sort of thing uh, in these local areas. Now, <laughs> his was well known in these areas, these local areas, and his reputation in these local areas was of a con man. That's what he was. So he allowed Maddox to believe that he was an army colonel, although colonel was merely his given name. He allowed, um, when Maddox, sorry, when Maddox told Scott that she was pregnant, he told her that he'd been called away uh, on an army business. After several months, she realized that he had no intention of returning. So now we have rejection, 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 don't we? Really, 
from a very young age for Manson. So the mother's very young. She's um, now had a child. She's waiting for this man who's a liar, um, a good manipulator. It sounds a little bit like him. His name was Colonel, but he wasn't really a Colonel, as he told her. So, you know, right from early on, um, he was born into this world, really, of lies, wasn't he, really? So in August 1934, before Manson's birth, Ballots married William Eugene Manson in 19, 9, 1909 to 1961, a labourer and of a dry cleaning business. Now Maddox often went on drinking sprees with her brother Luther, leaving Charles with multiple babysitters. Now we've had a lot of this where people have said, oh, but he was left on his own for days on end. No, he wasn't. He was never left on his own, actually. She would go out, and she'd done quite a lot of stuff, but he was left with babysitting, and a lot of the time left with his aunts and different things like this. He wasn't actually left on his own. He likes you to think he was, because he likes you to think that's how his life and what made him what he was. Remember, Charles Manson lies. He manipulates. He wants you to feel something about him that's untrue. So anyway... Um, they divorced her, I think, in April, 19, April 30th, 1937, after William alleged gross uh, neglect of duty by Maddox. So really, she was no good as a wife, really, because she wasn't there. She was out of her brother, pining out all the time. He was left with a kid or with babysitters, and that was it. The marriage was over, and on they walked. They, so really, <laughs> that was it. Charles retained William's last name, though, of Manson after that. So that's where Charles Manson comes from, or else it would have been Maddox. So on the 1st of August 1939, Luther and Kathleen Maddox were arrested um, for assault and robbery. Kathleen and Luther were sentenced to five and ten years in prison. So Manson was placed in the home of his aunt and uncle in McLaren in West Virginia and his mother um, was on parole in 1942. So he wasn't left on his own, he was brought up actually in quite a good home actually for that time. Manson later, later characterised the weeks after she returned from prison was the happiest time of his life. All right, and actually mother to stay with him throughout his life after that. Listen, she was young, she was poor, you know, she went to prison, her child was looked after. So we read a lot about this, it's like she was a prostitute, she was this, she was that. I don't think she was. I think she was just a mixed up woman. She was a drinker, without a doubt. Um, and I think Manson understood that and knew that. And, and that's from his childhood as well. Um, I think is what forms his character. You know, that again, no father. And then the father not wanted him because she took a paternity out to get money out of him. And then the next man in his life has gone. And she goes to prison, she's gone. People are going, going, going all the time, aren't they? So Manson now feels this, you know, trauma every time because he's a young child and no matter how good he was cared for by his aunt and uncle, it wasn't his mother. It was another loss to him. All his life, there was losses. And I think this is part of what makes him what he is. So um, I think weeks after she was released, they moved to um, Charleston, West Virginia, where um, Manson continued continue to play truant um, and his mother 
um, I, I think she was just drink, drink, drink in the evenings. Now listen, when you have a child that's had all this trauma as we just said, then you have a mother that's come out of prison, she's still drinking. He's now playing truant from school. He is cannot be um, controlled at this point. It's sort of gone too far for him. So she was arrested again for, um, for a grand larceny, I think, but she was not convicted that time. Then the family later moved to Indianapolis where Maddox met an alcoholic mm -hmm. named um, Lewis through Alcohol Anonymous. The marriage, um, I think she married him in 1943. So here comes somebody else now. But now we have another alcoholic coming into the life of this mixed up lad already. So listen, his first offence, you know, and he says about this with this interview with Diane Sawyer and Manson said that when he was nine, uh, he set fire to a school. Manson also got in trouble for truancy um, and petty theft. Um, although there were a lack of foster home places, um, um, home, sorry, a lack of foster home placements, in 1947, at the age of 13, Manson was placed in um, a boys' school uh, in Indiana, and the school was male, you know, it was literally run by Catholic priests. Now, this is 1947, so we talked about, haven't we, and I'm actually doing lots of research, so I haven't even released any of them out yet, about these sort of homes, you know, now we all know because it's been out, hasn't it, it's all coming out all over the world at the moment, you know, and it has been for the last 10 years about how these kids were treated and stuff. So, you know, this boy was age 13, he was going into a delinquent's home run by Catholic uh, priests. So it ain't looking good for him. So now his character's changing even more. It was a strict school, there was punishment, um, and really it was for punishment for the tiniest thing. Whatever you did, you were punished. And uh, it wouldn't have been um, nice. So it was either the leather strap or the wooden spoon. Now, he ran away from there and slept in the woods under the bridges and all this sort of stuff, wherever he could find shelter. Now, Manson then fled home to his mother and spent Christmas of 1947 with her and his aunt in his uncle's house. So, he'd escaped, he'd, he'd gone there because you can imagine, can't you, how bad this would have been. His mother returned him to the school. Ten months later, he ran away then to Indianapolis. In 1948 in Indianapolis, Manson committed his first known crime by robbing a grocery store for food. Uh, and as, it, as he says it himself, he was starving. It was literally to get something to eat. Again, however, Manson was found then um, a cigar box containing just over $100, and he took the money as well. So now he's gone from just trying to steal for some food, but he may have got off. He's now took the money as well. He used the money in Indianapolis actually, Skid Row it was called, and he brought food. So he brought food and I think he brought a room to rent there as well. For the first time Manson tried to go straight by getting a job as a delivery messenger for the Western Union. However this quickly began, he quickly then began to supplement his income and go back to petty theft because I think for him it was difficult for him to control and be told what to do by anybody. I just don't think he had the, um, he couldn't do it. He just didn't have that in him to do it. And I think he much preferred 
to do crime because one, it was easy for him to do. He was in control of himself and he, he knew what he was going to do and what he could and couldn't do. Um, rather than getting a full-time job and be dictated to by someone. I think for Manson, that was really it. So he eventually got caught in 1949 and, um, you know, really, you've got this sympathetic judge actually that sent him to a Boys Town juvenile, juvenile facility in Nebraska. Now, after four days at this Boys Town, he and a fellow student, uh, Blackie Nielsen, obtained a gun and stole a car. Just can't help them, can you really? They used it to commit two armed robberies and on the way to the home of Nielsen's uncle in Illinois. So Nielsen's uncle was a professional thief, so then he's now mixing, he's now doing all this stuff, they're mixing these things, and then the boys, of course, then became his apprentices to learn the trade, really. So Manson was arrested two weeks later during a nighttime raid on um, a petrol station. Anyway, um, in the investigation that followed, he was linked and his two earlier robberies and he was sent to Indiana Boys School, a strict reform school. Now listen, this gets, sort of gets a little bit, um, <laughs> it gets a little bit bad in this bit, so if you don't like these sort of things then maybe this isn't for you, this part, just letting you know. So we have um, at the school, other students allegedly raped Manson with, an, uh, with the encouragement of the staff members and he was repeatedly beaten as well. He ran away from the school 18 times. 18 times and that's telling you something, isn't it? 18 times he ran away. While at this school, Manson developed self-defence techniques he called later, he called this, the insane game, because he realised if he pretended to be insane, you see where I'm going with this, they would leave him alone. When he was physically unable to defend himself, he would screech, uh, you know, <laughs> and scream and wave his arms around uh, to convince these other people that he was insane. So after a number of failed attempts, um, he escaped with two other boys in February 1951. These three escapees were robbing filling stations and attempting to drive to California in a stolen car when again they were arrested. He was uh, very unlucky and he was arrested I think in Utah. So because they crossed borders now, right, because we're talking about American law now, so the minute he crossed the border, that was then a federal crime. So the driver, the driver in a stolen car across the state line, Manson was sent to Washington DC in National, um, National Training School for boys. On arrival, he was given an aptitude test where it was determined that he was illiterate, but he had an above IQ of 109. So that's what I'm saying, he may come across stupid. He was not stupid. He had a lot of common sense and, you know, you haven't got to be a great reader and writer to have great common sense and survival mode that this boy had. So on the psychic, psychiatric's recommendation, Manson was referred in October 1951 to National um, Natural Bridge Honor Camp at this minimum security institution. 
His aunt visited him there and told administrators that she would let him stay at her house and would help him find work. Manson had the parole hearing scheduled for February 1952. However, in January, he was caught raping a boy at Knife Point. Manson was transferred then to the Federal uh, Reformatory in Pittsburgh, Virginia. Now, you know, he doesn't know, he never liked to bring this up and he would never talk about this. He had been abused, I think, most of his life. And if his abuse started when he first went to that home, he'd been 13 when he started being abused. So when he was starting to be abused, he was then in puberty, wasn't he, or just coming into puberty. All them years then, he was in and out of these institutions where he was being raped and abused, enough so that he had to pretend that he had gone insane to stop the abuse happening. And that's even with staff knowing about it. And then at this point, then he's turned around and he's been the abuser himself by raping another boy at knife point. Now it was wrote that the guard that saw them um, as he opened the door, the knife was around the boy's throat and he was behind him and he was sexually assaulting that child. So Manson was a rapist. He was. Um, I think there he also committed a further of eight serious disciplinary child offences involving homosexual acts. He was then moved to the maximum security reformatory in Ohio in, um, and where he was expected to remain until his release on his 21st birthday in November 1955. Good behaviour led to him being released earlier in 1954 where he lived with his aunt and uncle. So in January 1955, Manson married um, a waitress named Rosaline Jean Willis. Now around October time, about three months after he and his pregnant wife arrived in Los Angeles, he, he actually arrived there in a stolen car in from, I think, what she was stolen in Ohio and then drove there. Manson was then again charged with federal crime again for driving the car across this you know, state lines um, and that. And then after the psychiatric evaluation, he was given five years probation. So I think then he was arrested in, in March 1956 for the other car he'd stolen and never turned up to the thing, to the hearing. So again, his probation was revoked. He was then sentenced to three years in prison in Terminal Island, San Pedro, California. While Mance was in prison, Rosaline gave birth to their son, Charles Manson Jr. During the first year of the um, Terminal Island, Manson received visits from Rosie, Rosalie and his mother, who actually was staying at that time with her as well, I think. She had moved up with them. Um, and they were all sort of living together in this house and she was visiting and regularly seemed to be okay. Listen, he was always going to be in and out of prison, whether this woman stayed with him or not. But in March 1957, when the visit from his wife ceased, his mother informed him that she had literally started living with another man. Uh, she had left him, hadn't she really? And in less than two weeks before the scheduled parole hearing, Mansell, uh, Manson escaped, actually, uh, by stealing a car and he was given five years probation and then his parole again then was denied. Now, the thing is with Manson, he is, um, I think he, I think he, 
I don't know if he would have settled with this woman, right? Because I don't think Manson would have settled with anyone to tell the truth. But I think at that point he was trying to. He'd had his first son and I think he was trying to. But he was a thief. And he was a petty thief. He couldn't help himself. He couldn't conform to where he could go and work for somewhere else. He couldn't stand that being told what to do. So now Manson's now, you know, got these five years uh, parole in September 1958, in the same year in which Rosalie received and she, you know, the decree for the divorce. So by November, anyway, he was pimping a 16 year old and was receiving additional support from the girls and the wealthy parents. In September 1959, he pleaded guilty to the charge of attempting to cash a forged US Treasury cheque, which he claimed he'd stolen from the mailbox. Um, and the latter then was was dropped. So really, he was into everything, wasn't he, Manson? He just he was just into everything. But listen, he received a 10-year suspended sentence and probation after the young woman named Lorna, who had been arrested after the prostitution, made a tearful plea before the court that she and Manson were deeply in love, and he would marry, and she would marry if Charles was free. He's very manipulative. So, anyway, you have this tearful woman, don't you, that's saying to this judge, we're going to get married. We're in love. <laughs> it used to earn money, but anyway, she'd said all this, and, you know, of course, you know, I'm going to marry him if you free him. Of course, Charles would free, you know, be free. But by the end of the year, the woman did marry him anyway. And, um... <laughs> And I think the only reason is, and I think a lot of people only think the reason for this is, is that if, you, if you're married, you can't testify, can you, against your husband? And, um, and it says that they think that's probably why that, you know, she couldn't then be asked to or required to testify against him. So Manson then took uh, Lorna and another woman to New Mexico for the purposes of prostituting them out, resulting in being held, actually, and questioned in violation of the Mann Act. Now, the Mann Act, the Mann Act is um, also known as the White Slave Traffic Act of 1910. It is a federal law which criminalised the transportation of any woman or girl for the purposes of prostitution, uh, debauchery, or, or any other sort of immoral purposes. Really, right? The Act um, was aimed at the prostitution, immorally, and human trafficking. So they got him on that, or they tried to, tried to. So though he was released, Manson correctly suspected that the investigation had not ended, which it hadn't. And when he disappeared, he violated his probation and then a bench warrant was issued for him again then. So an indictment actually of violation of the Mann Act followed in April 1960, following the arrest of one of the women for prostitution Manson was arrested in June in Texas um, and was then returned to Los Angeles. Again, though, he was for violating the probation on the check cash and charge. He was ordered to serve 10 years. Now, he wasn't serving 10 years for making these girls prostitute because really that really fell through. It was for the older charge, the previous charge of the fraudulent checks. Um, that he was given 10 year sentence for. 
Certainly Manson spent a year trying unsuccessfully to appeal actually um, and um, get probation but he didn't get it. So in July 1961 actually he was then transferred from Los Angeles to the county jail of the United States Penitentiary in McNeil Island, Washington. So he's been everywhere this man hasn't he? He's just been everywhere. Um, there he took guitar lessons actually from, um, is it Barker Carpis uh, gang leader Elvin Creepy Carpis and obtained, <laughs> obtained another inmate, um, a contract, contact name from someone at Universal Studios in Hollywood, um, Phil Kaufman. Now this is where his obsession with music started because he's in a prison. Okay, he's in with these people, he's manipulated, he's in this way to these gang leaders who know people on the outside. Now, I'm not saying he wasn't a bad musician, he was, but you're in a penitentiary, aren't you? And you're playing your music to people that one can't leave that penitentiary, haven't got much else to do, really. So, of course, they're going to think your music's great and you're great and everything. It's going to build your confidence up. And that's what it did, I think, with Manson. And to tell the truth, his music wasn't bad. And if he wasn't actually insane and done what he'd done, he, you know, and done it the normal way, he probably would have been a, a very good musician. But I think this man with the power that he could have got as a musician was uh, not good at all. It, I mean, he would have been deadly. Really, it was deadly enough as it was. Give him a bit more power and money. Oh gosh, God knows what this man would have done. So anyway, according to Jeff Gunn's uh, 2013 biography on Manson, his mother moved to Washington State to be closer to him during his McNeil Island incarceration, working nearby as a waitress. Now that's what I'm saying. His mother wasn't a bad person. His mother had done stupid things throughout her life. But she had followed him around, she'd stuck with him from thick and thin. I mean, some of the stuff this man has done, this woman has still stood by him. So I don't think she was that bad. She might have been a terrible mother and not be able to cope and stuff. But the auntie and uncle did. He was well looked after. You can't believe everything Manson tells you. So anyway, that charge wasn't it, was dropped, and then it was just the federal ones who was in this prison. His mother's followed him around, and then I think September 1961, actually, this annual review noted that he had this tremendous drive, you know, to call attention to himself. Well, he was, he was an attention seeker. And an obsession, um, really, you know, he was just obsessed with things, and especially even with himself, and he, he wanted to do this, and it was an obsession. And in September 1964, I think, that was, and in 1963, Leona was granted a divorce. So all this was sort of happening. In June 1966, Manson was sent into the second time to this um, Terminal Island in preparation, actually, for early release. By the time his release date was on the 21st of March, 1967, he had spent more than 32 years in prison. And the other, and other institutions really, right from, as I said, from very young. And this was mainly because he had broken federal laws, and most of them federal laws he broke was by taking a car, stealing a car, and driving across one state to another. That's a federal crime. So, 
American law is difficult to understand because here if you take and drive away a car you probably wouldn't even get prison time to show the truth. But there you will. There it can be because it's a federal law and not a state law that you're breaking the time can be a lot more. So American if you're not you're going to America and you're not American you need to be very careful of the laws there. I think the sad thing about this is that when you have a man that spent more than 32 years of his life in prison, right, by this time, this is by 1967, and then when he goes actually and he tells the authorities, do you know what, just let me stay in prison because it become his home. He requested permission to stay in 1967. Now, whether Charles Manson meant it, or whether Charles Manson was doing reverse psychology, which probably, Charles Manson was probably doing reverse psychology to tell you the truth, I'm going to tell this parole board, let me stay. This is my home. I'm happy. Mm -hmm. They let him out. So, <laughs> they let him out. And you think, you know, if only they'd kept him in, but they couldn't or could they? They was never ever going to keep him in. So after being discharged from prison in 1967, Manson began attracting his group of followers, mostly young women from around California. And that's how the Manson family starts to be formed. So this is the end of part one. Hope you've enjoyed it so far. There's a lot, I know. But he's a detailed person, isn't he? He's a detailed man, this man. So you know what to do. Thumbs up, because this is only going on members. So thumbs up if you liked it, be good. Spread it out, pass it out, tell people about us. That'd be really good. So, number two is coming up very shortly. So I hope you enjoy it. See you soon.